Welcome back to The Jacob Wool Show. A lot of news here to discuss today, a lot of stories in flux. This was one of those weekends where a lot of news broke out between the last time that we uh, recorded an episode, streamed an episode live, and uh, the time that I sat back down here on the chair on Monday. Uh, that doesn't always happen. A lot of times I'm worried. I say, gosh, will there be enough news on the Friday, Saturday, and then uh, you know Sunday and Monday morning to give me something to talk about? But uh, it is important that we do the show twice a week. I'll tell you, when I used to do Man Up with Jacob Wool once a week, it just it was never enough. It didn't matter what day you put the the show on. The issue was that invariably, you know, you could put the show on on Monday and you'd have to rewrite the whole thing Monday morning if you had a lot of breaking news, which was common. So I'd end up writing three or four different shows a week. If you talk about a show, when I write the show, when I do the notes for the show, it's a uh, eight to 25 page affair, depending on how much there is to talk about. And I'd have to write it three or four times throughout the week, deleting stories, adding stories in. Uh, and, and it was really something. So, uh, we do have a lot to discuss today, and of course, we begin talking about the reported break-in and assault of Paul Pelosi at the home of his home and, and Nancy Pelosi's home in San Francisco. Of course, they have this home. Uh, they have the uh, Napa Valley uh, Winery, which I believe she had declared a historic site so that they wouldn't have to pay property taxes on it. That's where Laura Loomer did the stunt where she brought in the illegal aliens onto the front lawn and uh, had a mariachi party there since uh, they don't want walls and, and all of that. But let me maybe walk you through where my thought process was on this story from the moment I woke up Friday morning and read it on to where I sit now, because I think that's sort of the most logical way to walk through this. So the first thing is I see the headline that her home was broken into. At that point, I don't know whether she's there or not, uh, whether anyone's there. And I think, oh, gosh, this is one of those stories where you have <clears throat> a Democrat from a very crime-ridden uh, part of the country, and they become the victims of the crime, which they enable. And we've seen a number of these stories. We saw uh, a congresswoman out of Philadelphia, I believe, who was carjacked not too long ago. There was one congresswoman who was carjacked twice— uh, there's been stories of a city councilman in these places that have their homes robbed, that become uh, burglarized, that, be, that, that are assaulted by the very criminals who they insist are out on the streets, by the homeless bums who suffer from psychosis and schizophrenia and marijuana use disorder and other drug addictions. So we see that kind of story all the time. That's what I thought it was at, at first, and that is typically a story which is played up on the right. Uh, to point out the hypocrisy, and we don't hear much about it after that. Now, very quickly it became apparent, no, in fact, Paul Pelosi was assaulted. And then we started to hear about, well, it was a QAnon extremist who assaulted Paul Pelosi, a QAnon uh, conspiracy theorist, far-right, election denier, you know, all of the, the normal tropes you hear. And certainly there are those nutcases out there that still believe in QAnon and they are mentally ill people. Basically, those are the only people left who believe in uh, QAnon. Uh, how could anyone else believe in that at this point, besides a, a somebody who suffers from psychosis, schizophrenia, 
or somebody who's just very, very low IQ, maybe. So those people exist, but that's what we heard. Now, <clears throat> important to consider the source here. We, we heard it from uh, the likes of Ben Collins and Brandy Zadroni over at NBC News. Now, these are two reporters who I can speak from firsthand experience are purveyors of fake news. In fact, they are people who uh, basically pushed for me to be banned from Twitter. They did so largely on the basis of claiming that I was behind all kinds of uh, fake accounts. And their source for this, they said they had a source at Twitter. What it turned out they actually had was uh, a, a, one person said that they had a source at Twitter. Okay. Michael Avenatti said that he would talk to that person. And Brandy Zadroni and Ben Collins talked to Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti was their source. And Michael Avenatti talked to another person who talked to another person who claimed to be at Twitter, purportedly. So I know that these people can be very unreliable when it comes to reporting the news. I know that they're certainly uh, left-wing goons, that they target Republicans with fake news constantly. I know that they have put people in danger before with their false reporting, uh, physical danger and otherwise. And so it's important to consider the source on all this. Now, we also live in a, in a world now where there's one thing that we know, and that is when these stories first come out, the initial version of what's reported is almost never the truth. I mean, the most recent example being, of course, this Nord Stream 2 bombing, where they said that Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2 were both bombed. Who did it? No one knew. They blamed the Russians. And you'll recall the first thing I asked everyone to do was just to, was just to take a deep breath and ask yourself, what do you know really, and how do you know it? And that's always a good thing to do because really the only independent evidence that we had, and there's no verifying that this evidence is even real, but the only independent evidence that we had was a picture of what looked like ocean, could be lake, who knows, with bubbles coming up. That was the only evidence that we actually had that was firsthand evidence. Everything else was somebody else claiming it or somebody else claiming that somebody else claimed it or what have you. And it's always important to ask that question. And then it turns out, well, no, actually, Nord Stream uh, 2 wasn't bombed, but it wasn't on in the first place. Actually, we're not sure if either one was bombed or either one's actually out of commission. So on the whole matter of Nord Stream pipelines being bombed, we actually today have no more independent firsthand information than we had when that story first broke weeks ago, or maybe a month ago now. Think about that. We have no more information today independently than we had then. Independent firsthand information. Or, or at least, you know, somebody does a YouTube video and they show us the pipeline firsthand or claim to. We don't. We're still totally reliant on claims from government officials and, and mainstream media citing unnamed officials and all of that. Now, when we get into this story here, we remember that the initial version of a story like this is almost never true. And then we ask ourselves, well, what else do we know for sure? Well, one thing we know is that Paul Pelosi is a degenerate drunk. No, we know that for sure. I mean, there was a story uh, just recently. Uh, he pleaded guilty to aggravated DUI, sentenced to five days in jail, racing all around California, 
at high speeds, very late at night, very, very drunk, very intoxicated, tried to get out of it by saying, you know who I am, my wife is Nancy Pelosi, didn't work. He nearly killed somebody who he hit. Uh, He had, we're now told, an unnamed minor in the car at the time. That's standard for minors to be unnamed, whether they're family members or, or what have you. We just don't know. And, and remember something, this is not a guy who's, you know, a 36-year-old coked-out mortgage broker. This is an 82-year-old man who is married to the Speaker of the House, third in line to the president in the hierarchy. President goes down, vice president takes over. If the president and the vice president were to go down, the Speaker of the House would then be next up in the line of secession. And so uh, that, is, that is what we know about Paul Pelosi. Very unusual behavior out of an 82-year-old man. It's not something you see. It's not something you see a lot. It's just kind of conduct. And so the initial version of the story just doesn't make a lot of sense, and it, and it keeps changing. And we hear, well, it's him, and it's the other guy, and they're both holding onto a hammer. We hear that it was a welfare check call to go check on them, and we think, like, that never made sense to me. If you were to call and say, I'd like a welfare check on my grandpa, he's not answering the phone, and it were 237, 257, whatever, at night, um, they would say, well, he's probably asleep. Call us back in the morning or the afternoon if you haven't heard from him. That never made sense. Well, without wasting a whole lot of time, let's just put it this way. The, the versions of the official story have changed now three or four times. The latest version of the official story out of local officials is the first, which makes some sense, which would explain the unexplainable uh, heretofore. The latest version is something that would explain some of these things that didn't make sense. For example, we heard that there was a third person who answered the door. Well, now they say, no, no, there was no third person. It was Paul Pelosi who answered the door. There was the issue of the welfare check. You know, how exactly would that work? Why would it be a welfare check? Well, no, now we know it wasn't a welfare check. The story is that he kind of tried to fool the guy, went into the bathroom, talked to him, called police to come and, and look at things. He didn't want the guy to know from outside the bathroom door. So then what he did was, um, he said, yeah, just come on by and check this out because there's an indeterminate reason for checking it out, not a specific, you know, California uh, uh, penal code section. It is categorized as a welfare check. So that now makes some more sense. Um, there's the question of, well, why was Paul Pelosi in his underwear? Well, if he were asleep and he were waking up, that would make sense. The other thing we know about Paul Pelosi is if he's on the West Coast and he were actually awake at that time, that would not make a lot of sense. One thing about the West Coast, if you don't know, is that because the whole country, the, most of the power centers of the country, most of the influence centers are on the East Coast here in the United States. New York, D.C. are the main ones. Um, next up, you have Boston. You have Miami to some degree. Atlanta uh, is an East Coast, at least it's on East Coast time. It's actually quite far inland, really, when you look at the map. Um these are all East Coast centers, okay? You have all of that on the East Coast. The financial markets run on the East Coast. And you have the, some of the derivatives markets in Chicago on Central Time and all that. But the NYSE, the, the big markets are on the East Coast. So the country runs essentially on East Coast time, whether 
you know it or not. The other thing we know is that Paul Pelosi is a prolific inside trader, insider trader. I mean, he he uses inside information uh, from Nancy Pelosi in violation of Rule 10b-5 and in violation of the U.S. Uh, criminal code and uh, regularly trades stock. Now, to, to be able to do that uh, the way that he does it on the West Coast, if he happens to be on the West Coast, and this was a day when the market would be open, you'd have to be waking up, and I can speak from experience on this, you have to be waking up at 5.30 a.m. You know, in order to be awake and, and alert and be monitoring the pre-market situation in the futures before the market opens, you can't wake up at 6.25 and start rocking and rolling at 6.30. It's not going to work. And so you wouldn't be up at 3 a.m., particularly on the West Coast. The entire West Coast runs earlier. The East Coast runs a lot later. It's one of the things I had to kind of get used to uh, moving out to the East Coast is just the fact that people are up a lot later. So he was asleep, presumably, in his underwear. That's why he got out of bed in his underwear. This is just the, the latest version of the official story. Now, somebody says here in the chat, uh, even early in the case were some pre-market trades. Right. I mean, so again, you know, being on the, being on the, now you, you may have to wake up that early East coast time if you're truly a, a professional trader, but even in the case of somebody like Paul Pelosi, um, you know, it's, it's an early kind of time. Now, the other part about this is that you can't begrudge people, including me or anyone else for questioning this, because we have to think about the backdrop for all of this, what we have seen, what the mainstream media has tried to foist upon us before. I'll go over a few examples here. You, of course, remember Jesse Smollett. This is MAGA country. They tried to hang him. Uh, Kamala Harris called it a modern-day lynching. She didn't delete that tweet for like a year and a half. Still up. In fact, I think when she became vice president, it was still up. Finally deleted it. Remember the Jesse Smollett hoax? You remember the NASCAR noose uh, hanging up on the garage of Bubba Wallace? The FBI flew in. Hate crimes investigators look into it. Turns out it was just the little rope that you used to pull down the garage. It wasn't a noose, even if it were. FBI jetting in there. There's the Trump-Ukraine call, of course. Uh, the January 6th officer that they claimed was beat to death. Remember they claimed the January 6th officer was beat to death with a fire extinguisher? Later turns out, actually, he had a condition uh, and he basically had a seizure and died and had nothing to do whatsoever with any beating by any uh, insurrectionists or rioters or whatever the media decided to call them that day. But they but they pushed that for three, four months. Remember, he they he, he, he lied in the Capitol Rotunda. Uh, he, was, he was laying in state in the Capitol Rotunda, half-masked the whole nine yards. He was not murdered. He died of natural causes, at least natural causes insofar as his particular health situation. We remember the very fine people hoax. They, they still claim that Trump called white supremacists very fine people. The pee tape turned out to be complete nonsense, that Trump was basically having prostitutes pee on him or he was peeing on prostitutes in Moscow or whatever. I mean, the, the dossier was so fake on its face. It, even the flight plan, it said that Trump took to Moscow, his plane couldn't do. It didn't have that kind of range. Uh, we have, of course, the uh, story they pushed that uh, Governor Whitmer in Michigan was about to be imminently kidnapped by a plot. Well, it turns out it was all uh, basically an entrapment situation that the FBI was running. Remember the Trump Tower servers talking to Russia? I mean, there were a hundred different Russia hoax mini stories that we could take out that were fake. Remember the media told us that Hunter Biden's laptop was fake. 
it wasn't real. It's fake, they said. His laptop is a Russian disinformation story. There is no laptop. It's not real. Uh, that's what Joe Biden himself told us, even though he knew the laptop was real. Of course he did. And so did all these other people. Remember the story of Border Patrol agents whipping illegals? Totally fake, totally false, never happened. Uh, the kids in cages, remember they said that Trump started this thing where they put kids in little dog cages and turns out, no, they had these holding pins that are basically chain link. They've been there for decades. Back to the Clinton administration, as far as anyone can tell. Certainly there during the Obama administration. Remember the story about Russian bounties on the heads of U.S. soldiers uh, that they released in 2020 to try to make Trump at once again look like a Russian stooge? They claimed that, that Russian soldiers were putting bounties on the heads of uh, U.S. troops in Afghanistan, offering to pay Taliban to kill U.S. troops, particularly high-ranking troops. Uh, it turns out that was a complete hoax planted by the CIA and the Democrat Party and the media, run with like crazy. Totally false, it turned out. Of course, you'll recall the recent one where some broad came out and said Trump tried to hijack the steering wheel of the beast from the Secret Service. Turns out he wasn't even in the beast. Car was nowhere near there. She wasn't in the car uh, and he wasn't in that car and that car wasn't there. Every part of the story was completely false. She lied under oath in front of Congress. Doesn't matter. It's uh, what the media wanted to hear. Maybe a great example of this that, that was even though it was on video, it was complex, a lot of different angles, a lot of different claims, the Kyle Rittenhouse story. I mean, for, for months and months and months, the media reported that Kyle Rittenhouse was just basically a white supremacist mass shooter. They reported that Kyle Rittenhouse just went out trying to kill black protesters. They reported, they reported that he did kill black protesters and shot others. Not true at all. Of course, totally exonerated at trial, acquitted on all charges. He was kept in jail for months on very high bail because of this. He ended up losing 30 pounds. He was treated very poorly there. And of course, the other story that plays into all this is the, I mean, I could go on. We can do this for an hour or two. I mean, it, it, there's a hundred of these hoaxes the media has pushed on us. But of course, it's not just that. There's also the matter that so many of these politicians and their loved ones and their families are complete degenerates when it comes to alcohol, when it comes to drugs, when it comes to sex. They're total deviants. I mean, you look at Hunter Biden's laptop, again, that they told us was fake, and what is he doing? There are some pictures on that laptop, by the way, that are illegal to share, that are illegal to post. In other words, uh, there are some photos which, trust me, you don't want to look at uh, on that laptop, and you don't you don't want to be in possession of these photos. I don't. It's not legal to be in possession of them. Uh, th but there are there are photos which depict Hunter with minors. One of them that I've seen, which is not illegal because the minors are fully clothed, shows Hunter Biden um, shirtless. Um, in a drug binge on a couch in kind of a tropical area. Looks like Southeast Asia to me, as best as I can tell. Uh, and there's like four or five little girls with him. And, and I mean little girls. I mean, I mean seven, eight, nine years old. Not older than that. And we're not even talking double-digit age. 
And they're just sort of there and like laying with him and all over him. And there's the Natalie Biden. I mean, it's just so gross. I don't even want to go into it now. It's not the point. But the point is here, these people in so many cases are degenerates. You look at the Ed Buck story, the story of Ed Buck. I mean, you're talking about a guy who would uh, basically have black uh, male prostitute drug addicts come over. And he would uh, tor- torture them for some time, uh, do sex acts with them, uh, inject them with meth to keep them alive as he did this, and he would torture them. And, and then they would end up dead by the end of it. And they wheel out one dead body and they wheeled out another. And I think three ultimately died there and others were nearly dead and barely escaped with their lives in West Hollywood at this sex den that he ran. Uh, and he was a top Democrat Party fundraiser. He was great friends with... Uh, with Adam Schiff. Adam Schiff was involved in a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes parties with Ed Buck, as far as everyone can tell. And Ed Buck's just one of many. I mean, you, you can go right on down the list, and you see countless stories of this. I mean, there's the story of Barney Frank, where, if you don't remember, it wasn't merely that Barney Frank was gay. Well, that was a story in 1991, 92, 93, whenever that story came out on its own. But it wasn't merely that he was gay. It was that he was actually running a gay sex brothel in Washington, D.C., right up on Capitol Hill. He was running a gay brothel in Washington, D.C. as a congressman, a senior member on many committees, Barney Frank. The, the author of, one of the co-authors of the Dodd-Frank financial reform bill, which did anything but reform the financial system. So there are just countless stories like this. Of course, there's uh, Dennis uh, Hastert, who was a Republican speaker, who was a pedophile, uh, would molest young boys. I mean, so this stuff is more common than you think. I have seen it firsthand. I have seen it up close. In our Predator DC investigations, we've done three seasons of that show. We are just trying to get footage out there as quickly as we can. We have been uh, raising money. We've been hiring editors. We're trying to get as much of the show out there as we can. If you haven't seen the show, I encourage you to watch Predator DC and to share it. Uh, but the things, some of the things we've seen on that show are just out of this world. I mean, 64-year-old guys, 15-year-old girls are bringing bags of dildos and sex toys and heavy-duty narcotics. I mean, I'll give you an example. We busted somebody on Predator DC by the name of Andrew Konoshewski. Andrew Konoshewski was Chuck Schumer's national press secretary. That's who Andrew Konoshewski is, okay? He came in. Uh, to have a sex tryst with an underage boy. He was getting naked and demanding the boy gets naked. And then I walked out and had a chat with him. So, again, we're talking people in the highest levels of politics, and that informs all of this. Uh, John points out here in the chat, Andrew Gillum. Right. Remember, Andrew Gillum was running for governor in Florida, and he was somebody who was just barely edged out by Ron DeSantis, which again speaks to how this uh, idea that Ron DeSantis is the ultimate candidate is, uh, I I have doubts. I'll just put it that way. I don't think he's a bad guy. People assume everything's an attack. It's not an attack. It's just that 
Ron DeSantis did more poorly with Hispanics in Florida than Trump did. And he has a last name like DeSantis. Ron DeSantis uh, lost with Hispanics to Andrew Gillum, even though DeSantis has a Hispanic sounding last name. And Gillum is a, a, a black guy who, you know, Hispanics are no fans of blacks. We know that much. That is well, well known, uh, well understood. And it turns out Andrew Gillum was a closeted gay uh, meth freak. And ultimately, he was found in a hotel room, uh, basically overdosed on meth and heroin, uh, injecting all kinds of chemicals into his genitals uh, in the midst of some gay sex tryst. And the media tried to tell us that that whole story was fake. Jacob Engels and Joe Biggs, uh, some of the guys who broke that story uh, down in Florida, Joe Biggs now uh, incarcerated, as far as I know, still over January 6th. Jacob Engels still doing good work down there. They tried to tell us that story was fake until the damn photos came out. Of And the photos are so disgusting, you don't even want to see them. So all of this informs this. Now, Zero Hedge has an article out uh, this morning uh, called Five Lingering Questions About the Bizarre Paul Pelosi Attack. You right here, first question uh, left to wonder is the obvious. What was DePape? That is the attacker, David DePape. What is his true motivation? We really don't know. Uh, the claims about his writings online are kind of dubious. Is it him? Could it just be another David DePape? How do you know it's the same David DePape? I don't know. It's something that has to be explored more. We don't know exactly what his motivation is. Second question is, uh, who is the identified, the unidentified person that let law enforcement into the home? Well, now law enforcement has come out, and in their third or fourth now press conference, their revision of the story, they say that, no, no, there's no third person. So, so that answers that, if we, if we are to believe what they say. Now, again... What could really clear all this up are cameras uh, at the home and body cameras. That really takes care of all of this. Uh, a third question uh, relates to whether or not it is normal for glass to be on the outside of the home due to a forced entry into the home. Well, there are just so many unknowns when it comes to that. We don't know what kind of glass they have. You know, first of all, it would stand to reason to me that... that um, they would have bulletproof glass in that kind of a situation in that home. Um, that would seem to, to make a lot of sense. Bulletproof glass behaves very differently. Uh, car glass, for example, often, often the glass ends up coming towards the outside because that's what it's designed to do. That way, if a baseball hits your window while you're driving, um, the glass doesn't come in towards you to the extent possible it goes out. So if you ever see car windows busted in, the glass does often fall a lot of times on the sidewalk, not so much inside. Some goes inside, but not as much because of the way the resin is, is done and the way glass is tempered. So we really don't know there. I mean, it's just too hard to say based on the kind of glass. It's, it's not an area for us to kind of try to explore from a distance as far as I can tell. Um, so hard to tell there. It says, uh, which brings us to a fourth unanswered question, which, has, which was uh, whether or not there was security in or around the house the night of the incident. We are hearing now, no, no security personnel. Were there alarms? Were there cameras? It's just unclear. It's just very unclear. Um, it would seem perhaps not. Uh, and as Glenn Greenwald pointed out this weekend, there's also the fifth question of how Paul Pelosi was able to take a bathroom break in the midst of the attack. You know, hard to say. I, I guess you'd kind of be negotiating with this nutball, presumably, and saying, hey, look, I'm going to call her and tell her to come here, but, um, you know, uh, 
let me just go to the bathroom. He texts five family members to call 911. He calls, you know, or who's up at 237. Um, and even just the call might render the cops to go check it out, even if he says nothing on the call. They're still going to go check it out. At least that's how it's always worked in California, as far as I've known. I don't know about San Francisco, but, and especially if it's the home of the Speaker of the House. Now, that's what we know and what we don't know heretofore. I imagine that between this episode and the next episode, we're going to learn a lot more about this. It's just hard to say right now exactly what, what did happen. It's just very hard to say. But I think the questions are, are warranted. Uh, we have a story out of Brazil in the uh, that came out last night. Lula you know, defeats Bolsonaro to again become Brazil's president. Uh, this is a report from the Associated Press. Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, what a name, uh, has done it again. 20 years after first winning the Brazilian presidency, the leftist defeated incumbent Jair Bolsonaro Sunday in an extremely tight election that marks an about phase for the country after years of far-right politics. Now, something to understand about Brazil, the elections are every bit as third world as you can imagine. I've seen so many reports where they go around and in Brazil, there's just outright vote buying that takes place uh, in the ghettos, uh, in the uh, favelas, they call them, uh, the slums. And so uh, any election in Brazil is corrupt, no matter which way it goes. Uh, that's something to understand. There's no such thing as a, a, a free and fair election in a place like that. Uh, and, and it is the case, too. I mean, when you look around the world, you don't have anything resembling uh, functioning democracies, uh, democratic republics, parliamentary republics. You don't have anything like that in any country around the world, as far as I've ever seen, where the average IQ in the country is below 100 or, say, below 99, 98. You just don't. There's something about the system of democracy or democratic republic, as we have here, or federalist republic, really, is a, is a better term for what we have here in the United States. Um, but again, I, it's such a boomer thing when you see people online, we don't live in a democracy, we live in a democratic republic. Okay, got it, 10-4. It's like, why did, did you really need to post a comment? Was it worth your energy? I mean, how many minutes of these people's lives have they spent correcting liberals about that? And the whole point is they're, they're calling it democracy for a reason. They don't like the idea that it's a federalist republic. They want it to be a direct democracy because in a direct democracy, the mob wins. So th there's a reason. They know that. You think that the person who posted that that went to Harvard Law doesn't, doesn't know that? And you think they're just ignorant? No, they purposely use that term and they didn't need you to correct them. And you correcting them isn't going to change what they call it next time. You know, like Hillary Clinton went to Yale Law School. Do you think she doesn't know that we're in a democratic republic? She knows. But that's the point. She wants to abolish that. So in any event here, it says that with 99.9% .9 of the votes counted in this runoff vote, De Silva had 50.9% and Bolsonaro 49.1%. So they have called this race. Before the vote, uh, Bolsonaro's campaign had made repeated unproven claims of possible electoral manipulation raising fears that he would not accept defeat. You know, like I said, it's not unproven claims. They, they do buy votes there. That's how that works, okay? There's international reports. They're from AFP. They're from uh, France 24. They're from every 
international body you can imagine. Elections in that country are totally corrupt. Now, our friend uh, Ali Alexander, friend of the show, friend of mine, uh, made news this morning on this subject. Uh, this is a report out of Business Insider writing, Stop the Steel leader Ali Alexander calls for a military coup in Brazil to intervene in its presidential election after Jair Bolsonaro's defeat. So, you know, the mainstream media here in America, they hate Bolsonaro because Bolsonaro is not a communist. He's not a leftist. Uh, he has been very good in terms of his relations with Trump. And uh, so they hate Bolsonaro. Our media just outright supports uh, communists all around the world. The report said in part, Ali Alexander, the far-right activist who organized a Stop the Steel rally held just before the Capitol riot, is now egging on discussion of a coup in Brazil, calling on the Brazilian military to intervene in the election defeat of Trump ally Jair Bolsonaro. Take to the streets, brothers of Brazil. Military stand by. Peaceably and patriotically, Ali Alexander wrote on the social media app Truth Social on Sunday evening. Alexander called for an audit of Brazil's election and for military to arrest any bad guys on either side, echoing the election denial rhetoric spread by MAGA conspiracy theorists in recent years. Man, they just write that with a straight face, MAGA conspiracy theorists. You know, there, there was a time in this country where uh, we would not allow, we just simply wouldn't allow the election of communists around the world, people like this Lula character. And you remember, this Lula was run out of office because he was so corrupt, he was so corrupt that he was run out of office. And by the way, I'm not saying that the right-wing leader, I'm not saying that Bolsonaro probably is not corrupt himself. Uh, one of the unfortunate practices around the world that exists is if you lose the election, you're thrown in jail. The next guy comes in, he has to discredit you. He has to discredit your supporters who aren't happy. So they just say, yeah, corruption, and they throw you in jail. Whether you were actually corrupt or not, happens all the time in Pakistan. It's one of the things that we try not to do here because of the very uh, destabilizing situation that it creates where nobody will lose because they're going to be thrown in jail. So then they commit fraud, which then gives them more reason to be thrown in jail and then makes the other side use fraud. It's why Trump tried to practice some magnanimity, some well, graciousness is a better term, I guess, when he won in 2016 and didn't keep going with the locker up stuff and arrest Hillary, throw her in jail. Uh, none of that, of course, ended up costing him greatly when they sent Mueller after him, but they have not done the same. Biden, of course, rounding up Trump supporters over January 6th and over a whole host of other issues. Bannon recently sentenced to four months. They've come after me, gosh, I mean, as hard as anyone. I think I'm the one person who's been charged in three states ensued in one or two. I, I don't know. I can't, I can't keep up anymore. It's so insane. Uh, but this is something they do. Uh, it is something that, that happens. Uh, you do have situations where uh, people uh, face uh, legal uh, confrontation that they probably would not have otherwise faced. And it is something that, again, we try to shy away from here in the U.S. Now, uh, Lula, uh, was facing criminal proceedings uh, as recently as April of 2022. Uh, he has himself promised to uh, punish corruption if he was elected, and now he has been. 
his uh, corruption convictions were annulled. So I remember very particularly, I think it was 16, that Lula da Silva had, he was in prison for corruption, but as recently as March of 2021, the uh, corruption charges were annulled, or presumably meaning gotten rid of. So this is a third world country, Brazil, an absolutely third world country, a, a horrifyingly violent country, uh, right there with uh, South Africa in terms of just the, the, the uh, total uh, depravity and the, the complete uh, disgusting third world conditions. I would say Brazil and uh, Brazil and South Africa in particular share one thing. Maybe it's maybe it's something about countries in the southern hemisphere where they share this, but these are two countries where it seems based on the reports you see, anecdotal evidence, statistics, people will kill you for your property much more readily than they will around the world. Um you know, I mean, certainly in the U.S., a lot of robberies, you see it where, you know, somebody uh, points a gun at you, threatens your life if you don't give them your purse, if you're a woman, let's say. And sometimes, even if you give them your purse, they'll shoot you. And sometimes they'll kill you, even if you give them your purse. If you don't, sometimes they will. But in these countries, there seems to be this this other, that is Brazil and South Africa, there seems to be this other kind of uh street rules that exist where the thug will just walk up behind you and without warning shoot you in the head and take your purse. Like they will just kill you to get your purse rather than even try to ask you for your purse. Um, they will just, you know, shoot you, drag you out of your car, then take the car as opposed to doing the whole give me your car thing and pointing the gun and even trying and bothering with that. South Africa and, and Brazil are two countries where I have seen this kind of, and, and it's not to say, I mean, there's other violent countries that have, that rival these countries in terms of kidnappings, in terms of kidnap for ransom, in terms of assaults, all of that. But these two countries in particular have this, this propensity for violent property crime, deadly violent property crime that I don't think is seen in any other country. I don't know if any of you can weigh in on that, what it is culturally, how this works, but um, it's... Um, it's really something. It's really something to see. Yeah, the motorcycle robberies in Brazil. And again, a lot of times they hop off the motorcycle, shoot you, then they take your stuff. They, they don't bother with asking. They don't even ask. They just kill you to kill you. It's just like your life is worth nothing uh, to criminals there. I want to talk about the renewed Russian strikes on Ukraine, but first I go to some questions and answers here. Of course, you can... Uh, ask questions. Uh, you can send them in uh, on jacobwold.org slash contact or send them in jacob at jacobwold.org. Either way, whatever is easiest for you, uh, with or without a donation. Of course, the show is supported financially by you so that I don't have to uh, endorse a different mattress every month here in exchange for money or tell you to use some junky VPN that's going to steal your information or make you less secure or God knows what in exchange for chump change. Show supported by you. You get value from what, what I do here on the broadcast, uh, then you can send value back to the show. And so many of you do. Uh, MJ coming with more donations. I know a number of recurring donations coming in now at jacobwool.org slash podcast. You can do recurring or one time there, I believe. Uh, jacobwool.org slash podcast. That's on the Gumroad platform. They've just been really uh, great to us. 
uh, low fees, uh, secure. They don't, you know, randomly ban me like they do at PayPal uh, because they don't like the content. PayPal, of course, bringing back this matter of fines and what have you. It's just that PayPal's a no-go, uh, obviously. But a couple questions here. I go to Scott first, and Scott asks, Jacob, I am a second-generation owner of a small construction company. My father has been a member of NFIB for a number of years. Does NFIB have effective lobbyists in D.C.? Our company grosses between 4 and $8 million a year uh, for perspective. Well, this is what you would call a special interest group, a special interest lobby. And there are a lot of these. I mean, there's the American Truckers Association, the Chamber of Commerce. You have particular special interest groups. Now, some of these groups will operate purely using in-house lobbyists. Some of them will um, retain outside lobbying firms to work on their behalf. It really depends on um, the group. Some will do both. Um, I, I just, I, I can't say as far as the NFIB in particular, I don't know. I, and, I'm, and I'm not able to easily tell how effective uh, they are. They've been around a long time. Um, I mean, they, they operate all around the country. It is the, of course, this is, stands for the National, uh, this is basically the National Federation of Independent Business. It's a, a small business group. Um, you know, w- one thing I will say is this. I don't know how much you're paying to be a part of this group. One thing about a group like this uh, is that it's not necessarily specific to, say, construction. It's not specific to plumbers or electricians or some particular kind of uh, trade group. And so what you can count on a group like the NFIB to do generally is they will move generally in the interests of what they claim to be their, their public uh, interest, their, you know, what it is that they're, they're trying to advocate for. Um, and so it is something where, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say how much good it actually does for you on an annual basis. What they will do is basically uh, push legislation uh, each year when a, when a spending bill comes up, when something else comes up, they'll push it to a, to some degree. Uh, to what degree that is, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, it looks like essentially they do a lot of donating uh, to mostly Republicans. Uh, they've given 61000 to the National Republican Senatorial Committee, uh, 45000 to the NRCC. Uh, so that's what they do. They've done about $3 million in, in lobbying uh, in 2022 and $737,000 in contributions. So it's hard. To, I mean, it's hard to say. They certainly spend the money. I mean, there's no question about that. They spend the money based around the, the size that they are. Is it anything like what big business spends? No, it's not even. It's not even remotely close to that. Uh, but you know, is it worth it? It's hard to say. What I would say is that to compete with big business, Scott. I mean, there's nothing that stops a small business. Or I mean, you're not necessarily a, a small small business. You're small by comparison to you know. KB Homes or, or, or um, you know, one of the big home builders or something, but, or, or the Bin Laden family is a construction business or, or what, have, what have you, but is that, you know, if you have a particular project you want to do and you want to see direct gain from, you hire lobbyists yourself. I mean, if, you're, if you've got a business that does even a million a year in revenue and you're not hiring lobbyists, I wouldn't necessarily say needing to be on a constant basis, but it should probably be on an intermittent basis. Um, you know, that that's probably a line item you need, the, the way you probably need advertising or the way you probably need um, accounting. 
it's probably just something you have to spend on. And a lot of it is that it's like, well, for what exactly? That's, that's the problem. You see, if you, if you have lobbyists on staff, they tell you, Hey, um, or even within your network, it doesn't mean you've necessarily paid them just to look out for things like this, but they'll say, Hey, there's a new string of grants coming in in the next spending bill for affordable housing projects. You guys build stuff like that. Oh yeah. Okay. Well let's lobby for some of these grants to go to you. Or there's an opportunity to get an earmark into this bill for uh, construction of this or that kind of a project. Is that something that interests you? You go after that. So for a business of that size, I think, you know, does some small business federation do something? Yeah, you know, probably it's, if it's no large amount of contribution, I'd say, what the hell, you may as well do it. But uh, I think that a company of your size probably has to look at hiring lobbyists in particular, whether it is, uh, you know, our firm, uh, Berkman Associates, my email over there is jacob at berkmanassociates.com. Uh, or you can use, just use the normal email, jacob at jacobwold.org. Or it's some other firm. Uh, whatever the case is, it, it's something that, especially in construction, I think you have to look at hiring lobbyists individually, at least talking to them and at least kind of checking in and, and understanding what kind of opportunities may be out there, especially in an environment where trillion-dollar-plus spending bills are the norm. And that doesn't even, I mean, that's just grants and earmarks. That doesn't even get into the world of federal government contracting, government business, where there can be huge opportunities there, uh, especially for a company that, that's of your size, where you really start to get into the sweet spot of where the government still considers you a small business, but you're big enough to throw your weight around a little bit. Um, so anyway, something to think about there. Uh, John John asks, uh, hey, Jacob, just wanted to know your thoughts on the gang stalking guy that you interviewed a while back. I don't ever remember you commenting or giving your thoughts after the interview or on the following week's show. Well, you know, I didn't want to give my thoughts uh, directly right afterwards because I, I didn't want to. I just kind of wanted to leave the interview to stand on its merits. But there's a phenomenon out there. If you guys missed this, um, it is on YouTube. I think if you look up Jacob Old gang stalking, uh, you'll be able to find this interview that he he put up. I guess he recorded. He put it up. And essentially, there's a phenomenon out there known as gang stalking. And a phenomenon it is. Is it real? No, it's not real. But to the people who suffer from it, it's very real. I mean, if you say, is gang stalking real? The, the question is, and not to sound like Jordan Peterson, but the question is, what do you mean by real exactly? Because to the people that suffer from this, it's very real. Uh, to the people uh, who are loved ones to these people who have to endure they're suffering from it, it's very real. Um, to the people that sometimes end up getting caught in the crossfire of these people's um, delusions and how they react to them, it's very real. And therefore, it is something which I thought to be worthy of coverage. Now, what is it exactly? Well, we all know that when people suffer from um, paranoid delusions, paranoid psychosis, paranoid schizophrenia, any number of mental illnesses, even bipolar depression, which can present paranoia uh, and, and other mental illnesses. Uh, it's as old as time, the idea that people think, oh, somebody's following me or, oh, somebody's uh, listening to me or they're, they're hacking my devices or they're reading my diary. Or, th these are all very, very common delusions. Uh, they're so common within these realms of mental illness that it's kind of just a checkbox thing. It, it does present basically at some point for anybody who's suffering from these kind of mental illnesses. And again, to those people, 
with the untreated mental illnesses, it is as real as you listening to this show and hearing my voice is right now. You have to understand that. To them, it is real. Now, there has so that's as old as time. Now, what has is, is cropped up in, in recent years, basically since the advent of the internet, is this phenomenology known as gang stalking. And this is a very challenging one because you have uh, people who suffer from these mental illnesses. They crop up on the internet. They say, this is what I'm experiencing. I'm, and it's become known as gang stalking, essentially. They call themselves uh, targeted persons or targeted individuals is a more common name you hear. And they're all confirming it to each other online. And so it was really real to them before. And now they've got a lot of other people who say, it's real for me too. So now it's even more real. And now the idea of trying to talk them out of and work them through these delusions becomes a thousand times more challenging. You're a psychotherapist, you're talking to the people, and then they go on the internet when they get home, and a hundred other people online tell them, no, no, the, 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 they, whoever they are, there's different you know, groups that these people ascribe to being following them, stalking them, what have you. They got to your therapist. They got to your doctor. They poisoned your medication. Uh, so, and, and so it becomes almost impossible to, to root this out. Now, I found this guy named Doug Jones, no relation to Senator Doug Jones, and he runs a channel on YouTube called The Gang Stalking Channel. At least he did as of the last time I checked. And Doug Jones um, was a self-reported victim of gang stalking. He had a number of these phenomenologies. They followed him from job to job. They got him fired. It all started, according to him, and I'm not going to you know, rehash the whole interview, when he had a divorce as a younger man uh, 20 years ago or so. And after that, it started. Now, if you hear that, you're like, well, yeah, that's um, when men are going to have um, a psychosis, when they're going to break, have a psychotic break, or when they're going to suffer schizophrenia, um, or women for that matter, but it, it's more prevalent in men. It, it usually happens around the time of some kind of trauma. So it makes perfect sense. He had a divorce, it was traumatic, and then all of this started. And he didn't know it was gang stalking, as he puts it at first, until he started looking online. Well, anyway, it's a very interesting interview. And the reason it's interesting is because this guy is one of these influential nodes within that whole online world, which is worldwide. And he runs this channel. It's got 8,000 some odd subscribers. It's got more, many more subscribers than I have on YouTube. It's not suppressed by the algorithm in the same sense. And I, I walked him through it. I just asked him the questions, and it's a public interview. And, and Doug is, uh, is quite articulate. Uh, I mean, he is a guy who uh, works uh, or has worked as a, uh, as a registered nurse. Um, so he's not, he's not a complete dummy at all uh, by any means. But I walked him through some of this, and the interview was pretty interesting. And, and maybe I'd like to do a follow-up interview with him and just, and just see if there's any way to um, get his sense of it. But, but, but him having to say it out loud with somebody who he understood to be taking him seriously, and I was taking him seriously, uh, is, is something that I think helped him a lot, actually. And anyway, I thought it was an interesting interview, and it was a look at that whole phenomenology of people who uh, suffer from paranoia, and then they can find out 
they can find some kind of what they view as factual confirmation for their paranoia and a community of other people who also think to it that they found factual confirmation for it. And, uh, and it's something that is very prevalent on the internet and it can be uh, quite dangerous. Um, Doug reviewed in that revealed in that interview that he uh, carries a weapon with him because of fear of these stalkers. Okay, so you know it, it's it's a tough thing, and I and and I think that I did a public service by talking to him and talking him through it. And I think at the end of it, he was uh, better for it, better off for it, and uh, we got a better understanding of that phenomenology. So, um, it is, um, it is really something. Yeah. I mean, look, the guy, the guy suffers from one mental illness or another that causes paranoia. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, but I think maybe he starts to think that as well. And maybe he starts to think that there's a way out that involves treatment, medication, psychotherapy, et cetera based on the fact that he's had to articulate some of these things for me on that interview. And again, it just gives us a view for, for journalistic purposes into that whole world. Um, so it's, uh, it's really something. It is really, really something. Now, uh, go here to these uh, Russian strikes. We have uh, renewed reports out of uh, Russian cruise missile and uh, kamikaze drone strikes. Uh, these kamikaze drones apparently provided by Iran and, and made of wood, so they're harder to shoot down. Uh, Zero Hedge writes this morning, uh, missiles and drones hit 10 regions uh, where 18 sites were damaged, most of them energy-related. Uh, according to reports on Telegram, hundreds of settlements in seven regions of Ukraine were cut off. Uh, facilities in Cherkasy and uh, Kurovrad came under attack. Ukraine's military intercepted projectiles over the Lviv region, which spared the western part of the country from damage. Uh, power reported out across most of Kiev now. 80% uh, of the capital uh, reported now without electricity. Uh, they suspect that there will be sustained power outages. I can tell you, having spent many months in Ukraine, power outages are pretty common. Same with water outages. They, they just, you know, the infrastructure is really beat up uh, as it is. So, uh, Kharkiv, uh, two strikes took out infrastructure. A uh, lot of different uh, strikes across the country. So uh, we should be getting more information in on that. Just wanted to provide a, a brief update there. Uh, of course, Elon completing his acquisition of Twitter, closing the deal, dismissing Agrawal and uh, those other goons, including the woman who uh, went on Joe Rogan talking about why she banned me. He fired all of the top executives as soon as he took control. Uh, reports have come out suggesting that Musk, in fact, fired them for cause, nullifying their golden parachutes so that they won't get millions of dollars upon leaving. But there was this fact check kind of from Twitter on some of these tweets that said, there are no indications that Mr. Agrawal uh, did get $0 in severance. The sources claim a person familiar with the matter told that information that Musk assist the executives for cause, but nothing was confirmed in terms of payouts. So, it's unknown, okay? Now, if he did try to dismiss them for cause and not give them payouts, obviously they would sue, and what, likely what would happen is that they would settle out of court. Now, a lot of talk about what's going to happen with banned accounts. Uh, certainly, my account should be brought back on Twitter. Um, 
you know, I am not going to go on there and like make a separate account. Not going to do that. Um, my normal verified account should be brought back. Um, so if you see a Jacob Wool account, it's not mine unless it is at Jacob A. Wool. I'll let you know if anything changes on that. But that's my plan as of now, taking a wait and see approach. Now, one of the things I think in terms of uh, any kind of content moderation, if you will, on the site is, um, look, I mean, there's a time when must buys at the N-word trends. It, come, it came from a botnet that was traced back to left-wing groups. So they were trying to make Musk look bad. But I think a useful doctrine could be the, the doctrine on uh, fighting words, which was established by the U.S. Supreme Court in Chaplinsky v. New Hampshire in 1942. And it's been further elucidated by uh, case law that's come after that. Because this whole idea of hate speech, obviously hate speech is a purposefully vague term. Uh, it was invented by the left and for the left to uh, use as a weapon against their uh, political adversaries, their political foes, and anyone else they see fit. And they have done that. It's never been used against them. It never can be exactly. Hate speech is whatever they decide it is on that particular day. But fighting words are something different. Now, you know, I don't think that anybody wants to see the, the total cesspool that exists on some other social media sites. I mean, let's face it. I mean, Gab is a cesspool. I mean, the, the app works beautifully. There's more interesting content on there than there is on Truth Social, certainly. There's nothing like what you see on Telegram. Telegram's a global audience of really, you know, looped-in users in many cases. But, you know, it's just the, the, the propensity to see the N-word, to see uh, racial slurs just for the sake of racial slurs on Gab is just very high. Now, Gab's position is that if it's allowed by the First Amendment, it's allowed on the site. That's a position you can take. It, it doesn't necessarily um, make the app any more enjoyable to use, at least for me and, and for many people that I've spoken to. It's just kind of, uh, you know, pathetic. Now, of course, Twitter allows racial epithets and, and racial attacks on white people. They have for a long time. They allow the, the left to uh, say whatever they want. They don't allow it from the right. So how do you, you know, adjust for all this? I, I, again, I think the doctrine on fighting words is, is the best way to go. Uh, Justice Francis W. Murphy, uh, writing for a unanimous court, held that certain written or spoken words are an example or rather exempt from First Amendment protection when they instigate violent reactions by listeners. Although most speech falls under protection of the First Amendment, freedom of speech, expression, uh, that are lewd and obscene, profane, libelous, and insulting or fighting words cannot claim constitutional protection. Murphy argued that fighting words by their very utterance inflict injury or tend to incite an immediate breach of the peace. Uh, so that is kind of a good doctrine. I mean, I think really uh, there's obviously laws on criminal incitement. Um, there's obviously laws on threatening terrorist threats and the like that are very easy. Um, the left is very threatening on Twitter. They threaten people with violence constantly. I mean, I would just get, get violent threats constantly on Twitter uh, so that's probably a good doctrine to follow. It's one which is well understood, which has case law around it. It's not just up to some 
organization, some leftist organization to determine what they will allow and what they won't allow at any particular time. That's probably a good way to go. Once again, I'm taking a wait and see approach. And uh, hey, with any luck, I'll be back on Twitter and it will work out nicely and we'll be able to get this show uh, expanded using Twitter and get Predator DC expanded using Twitter. Uh, So uh, let's hope for the best here and uh, we'll see what happens. That's all. I'm just standing. I'm just standing by, and uh, you know, it's been it's been 44 months or so, and uh, who knows? Who knows what'll happen? Uh, we shall see. Uh, I do have a, a quick uh, question. It's it's really a question here, having to do with the stories I see about fentanyl, and and I just I want to kind of figure this out. Maybe some of you have the answers for me. Um, posted about this on Telegram last week, but. I've noticed that you know you, you, every time just about you see a story about a fentanyl bust, authorities claim that they they've seized enough fentanyl to kill millions of people. You ever see this? It's like we pulled over a guy, we searched his drug box, he had enough fentanyl to kill 15 million people. And uh, I don't know about you, but it, it just something seems a little off about that. You know, I, I think well. How does that work exactly? You know, I mean, how do you have any, any drug addicts, opioid addicts left in this country if every single drug dealer has enough to kill 15 million of them? And, you know, drug dealers are not exactly known for being uh, brilliant, you know, precision compounding pharmacists. So it's not like they're going to perfectly dilute it down to the level that is safe for each dime bag or whatever. So it's just something that I wonder about. Now, you know, here's an example of one of these stories that does this. And I had posted about this story a number of weeks ago for, for different reasons. Uh, but the story said here, um, is out of NBC News, a fentanyl courier carrying enough to kill millions got busted, then slipped the DEA. David Maldonado managed to drive away from federal drug agents after he agreed to cooperate with them. This is a fiasco for the DEA, one policing expert said. This is from NBC. Now, what I found interesting about this story was something very different. It says here, at 10.37 a.m. on June 18th, the trooper spotted the car weaving in and out of traffic on Interstate 70, just west of Denver. The troop, Because these, you know, these state troopers, they know the drug smuggling routes. They're not idiots. They um, look out for rental cars. They look out for different things. I mean, whatever it is, there's certain telltale signs of drug mules, and, and they know how to spot them, and they bust them a lot on these certain interstate corridors um, through certain areas where they're known to go, whether they have specific intel or not. Um, The trooper stopped the car and noticed that the driver was exceptionally nervous. The driver, identified as Maldonado, told the trooper that he had spent a week in town, in the town of Grand Junction, a visiting family. But the trooper knew this story was a lie. He had run a check on Maldonado's license plate prior to the stop, and learned that it had been scanned by a license plate reader in Southern California roughly 24 hours earlier. The trooper scanned the inside of Maldonado's car and noticed it was empty except a couple of energy drinks, some gas station snack food, and a blanket and seat, suggesting to the trooper maybe this guy's doing a cross-country trek, and he's a drug mule. So in any event, what what had initially stuck out to me about this story was just, you know, whoa, the, these license plate readers, the big data, the, the databases that are created, and my God, I mean, it's, it's just do we really have something better than China in terms of the privacy? I don't know that we do any longer. That was kind of remarkable to me. Now, it was a news story because he slipped away from them when they tried to do the control delivery. They lost him. 
Last I checked, the U.S. Marshals are looking for him. They're very good at uh, hunting down fugitives. They're exceptionally good. Some of the tactics they use to find fugitives. Oh, man. I've read some books from U.S. Marshals. It's amazing some of the tools they use. They're really good at it, especially in the tech age. Um, but I but I just, I can't get around that. I mean, how is it the case that the fentanyl is so powerful that every low-life drug smuggler can carry millions of lethal doses in their glove box? And if it is that powerful, you know, how could there be any drug users left in the U.S.? I mean, wouldn't they all be dead by now if it is such nuclear power? And uh, it, it and it says could kill your average human, but the druggies have a tolerance. Um, all of that. So it says you follow the affirmative action case. We'll talk about that on a, on maybe the next episode. Um, big Supreme Court case on affirmative action uh, could come out here. It's interesting, interesting to see what'll happen there. Um, we know Clarence Thomas doesn't like affirmative action. That's one thing he's talked about before. But in any event, here's what I suspect. What I suspect is that this fentanyl is just not anything close to pharmaceutical-grade fentanyl. I think if it were pharmaceutical-grade fentanyl, if it were 99% pure, 100% pure, you know, whatever, 98% pure, 92% pure, and it were in the quantities that they find, well, then yes, it would be enough to kill millions of people. But what I have seen, what I've researched, is that a lot of this fentanyl is actually cooked in Mexican labs using chemical precursors that come into Mexico from China. Now, if you Google search any of the fentanyl precursors, any of those chemicals, and you go to Google Images, like you don't have to go on the dark web, just on Google Images. You'll see, you know, WhatsApp, this number, WeChat, this number, order the precursor chemical today, a three-week shipping to Guadalajara from China. Like they're just for sale all over the regular internet. You do not even have to go uh, all the way on to, you know, the, the world of the, of the dark web. And then they order the precursors to Mexico and they're cooked in these makeshift labs. And this is still not stuff you want to mess around with, obviously. But what I suspect is that it still tests as being fentanyl because that's what it is chemically on a reagent test. But it's just not anywhere near the purity of, say, a pharmaceutical grade fentanyl. And fentanyl is a very good pharmaceutical drug for certain purposes. Um, you know, every, every medic uh, in a war zone carries it because if somebody has their leg blown off, it's a, it's a, the drug you want to give them. Works really well. Um, so it's not even necessarily Chinese fentanyl in a lot of cases. It, it's it's Chinese precursor chemicals cooked then in a Mexican outdoor, you know, makeshift drug lab. There's tons of videos of Vice has put out and others of, of this stuff being made. Some of it's, I'm sure, pure fentanyl. So that's what that's what my working theory is. I'm not exactly sure. You know, the other thing about this is of this whole idea that it's like a Chinese like geopolitical maneuver to hurt the United States. Well, maybe, but one of the things I wonder about that is is if you're China and you're doing something which kills off tens of thousands of people who are mostly just degenerate junkies. Let's face it, there are the stories of the one-off, you know, like Eric Bowling's son allegedly, you know, tries a Xanax bar that his friend gave him once and it had fentanyl in it. He's dead. Boom. You hear about these stories. They're very sad. They're very unfortunate. But on the whole, the people who are overdosing on fentanyl are people that contribute nothing to society. On average, there are exceptions. 
Now, they take a lot, healthcare resources, social services resources, um, property crimes they commit to fund their habits, all that stuff, needles left everywhere. So if China were killing them off, how exactly would that be weakening the United States? I mean, in any predictable kind of way, I, I don't know. Now, if it's a for-profit thing, and it just so happens to come from China, also from India, by the way, tons of it come from India, tons of it come from Thailand, tons of it come from Cambodia and Vietnam, just so you know, it's not only China. But if that's the case, Bangladesh too, um, other places, but, but if that's the case, it just doesn't make sense to me geopolitically. If you want to weaken a country, I think, frankly, what you'd want to do is send them pot and make it legal. Because with pot, they're never going to overdose. They're just going to be 50 to 90% less effective in every domain of, of, of human existence. And they're never going to OD. They're just going to keep smoking dope till the day they die. And uh, maybe that'll be a little bit sooner. Maybe not. Who knows? I mean, that's what you do. And, and, and having talked to Army PSYOP guys, part of JSOC's um, psychological operations uh, in Afghanistan, you know, one thing they've told me is if they wanted to pacify a valley, they tried everything. They did, you know, AM radio, FM radio broadcasts. They did uh, propaganda. They would do things where, you know, they might put the Taliban members' bodies up on bridges, you know, different things. They tried just about everything. But one thing that that they have said, uh, I know a few of these guys, that, that worked just about every time it was tried. If they wanted to pacify some valley or some pass or some little region in Afghanistan, one surefire way to do it was to flood the place with marijuana and pornography. They said, if you wanted to pacify it, if you wanted, I mean, at least make those guys way less combat effective. If you wanted to reduce their output of IEDs, reduce their output of heroin, reduce their output of violence. One way to do it, or at least their output against U.S. soldiers, they'd be quite violent amongst each other, even more violent. But one way to do it was to just flood it with porn and flood it with pot. And what I've been told, from what I've been told, it, it worked very well. Uh, much of those operations still classified and we won't learn about for a long time, I'm sure. Uh, pot grew quite well in some of those areas in Afghanistan and, and uh, that's what they do. But in any event, uh, glad I could ask the question. Um, pot makes people completely useless. I don't see how people smoke daily. Yeah, that's the best thing. It's like, you ask one of these pot people, you say, wait, if it's not addictive, why do you have to do it every day? And they get so angry. You say, it's not addictive. It's not addictive. As they, you just ask that basic question. You know, it's it's really something. It helps some cope with being useless. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so it is something that 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 is um, that's that's quite perplexing. But uh, guys, thanks for watching uh, on this fine Monday. I'll be back on Thursday at 2 p.m. live here on YouTube, podcast apps everywhere shortly after. If you'd like to contribute to the show, you can do so financially by uh, donating on Cash App, Real Jacob Wool, or going to jacobwool.org slash podcast. That's Cash App at Real Jacob Wool or jacobwool.org slash podcast to do a recurring donation or one-time donation through Gumroad. I appreciate it. The, the best contribution anyone here can make is to like the video, subscribe, share the links out there to help grow the, the broadcast, and, uh, and tune in on the next episode. So I'll see you live here Thursday, 2 p.m., podcast apps everywhere. 
shortly thereafter. I appreciate you tuning in. We'll learn more about all of these stories, and we'll have new that come uh, come out, uh, new stories that come out in the news. So thanks for watching, and I'll see you next time on The Jacob Wool Show.